Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. <clears throat> Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life or what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, whenever a passage starts with therefore, you've heard it said before, you need to find out what it's there for, all right? And so we're going to kind of recap real quickly where we were last week. Last week, we saw that Jesus taught us not to trust in money to provide for us. We're not to trust in money to provide for us by storing it up and hoarding it or focusing on it instead of him. We also saw that as impressive as large stores of wealth look, they are fleeting and cannot be counted on. Real life comes when we get our contentment and satisfaction from our relationship with our Heavenly Father. So go turn with me again to Luke chapter 12. Let me remind you of some couple quick passages that we saw last week to kind of lay the foundation for where we're going again tonight. In Luke chapter 12, we're going to look at just one verse, verse 15. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus says to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. By the way, is that the attitude of the world or the opposite of the attitude of the world? It's the exact opposite. The whole mindset of the world is, as you've even seen some of the bumper stickers, he who dies with the most toys wins. And the mindset is to get more and more. And that's not the mindset of a believer. A believer is to be, as you're about to see, content with what we have. Because our provision is who? It's God. It's Christ. And so go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 17 through 19. Again, passages we looked at last week as a reminder. As for the rich in this present age, do not, uh, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and be ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Jump over earlier in that same chapter, chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. It says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Look closely at verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But now some of you might be saying, wait a minute, Jim, the last verse you just read to us said that we should be content with food and clothing, but our section for study tonight shows Jesus saying, don't even worry about food and clothing. Did anybody catch what seems to be a contradiction there, or at least a little bit of a confusion? Here the passage says, be content with food and clothing and you'll be fine. Be content with what you have, that you got clothes, that you got something to eat. But Jesus actually, go back to our passage, he actually says, Therefore, I say to you, because of what we just laid the foundation of, putting our confidence in God and not money. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
And then he goes on and says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Of course, as we know, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You're right if you notice that it seems like it's different, but it's not. Jesus, remember, Jesus is teaching here where our focus is and where our focus should be and where our trust and dependence should be. Because, see, we could say, well, I'll just be content with food and clothing, and now I'm going to focus on making sure I have food and clothing. By the way, if you've ever been on mission trips, there are people all over the globe that don't have it like we do, and that's their whole daily focus. I know when I did mission trips all around the globe, I've been to 18 different countries, and some of them have not been really wealthy. Some of the worst ones I've ever, countries I've ever been to was Haiti. But I've seen this as well in Guatemala and El Salvador and other places that I've been. There are some people's whole daily focus is getting up and finding something to eat, finding water, worrying about their house and whether or not it's going to keep them warm or their clothing and all that. And Jesus is saying, well, the scripture says, be content with what you have. Some people say, well, I don't got anything or well, I don't have enough. Exactly. That's what she's saying. It's not the condition. It's where we put our faith. That's what we want you to hear. Therefore, remember what he's just said, don't put your trust in money. That was our study from last week. With that same mindset, keep your trust in the Lord when it comes to food and clothing. One of the ways you can be content with what you have is you will understand that God will provide what you need. That's the whole point. You need clothes? You're about to see tonight in our study. God knows that. You need to eat? You're going to see tonight in our study. God knows that. And when you trust in him, he will provide whatever you need. And as you're going to find out later on, not only tonight, but also when we continue on, he's a generous God. He's a generous God. That's why I can't wait till our cruise coming up in November when I'm going to teach on all the much more passages in Scripture. Because most people don't really understand how many times the Scripture says, you think this is the way it is? How much more when it comes to God? And God is a generous God. And as you see, he says, when you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all this stuff that you're worried about will be added to you. And actually, you'll find that when you really trust him, he's generous. He's generous. So we don't need to worry about these things and act like God doesn't know or God doesn't care because he does know and he does care. Look at chapter six again. Look at verses seven and eight. Chapter six and look at verses seven and eight. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. By the way, years ago, and I've shared this illustration in times past. Some of you might not have ever heard it. Years ago, when my wife and I were newlyweds and living in a trailer in New Orleans, we didn't have a whole lot of money. And uh, we actually uh, came to a point in our first year of marriage where we had no money and no food. And, we, and when I say no money and no food, I think we might have had $25 to our name. That's adding checking and savings, okay? And we didn't have hardly any money. I'm sorry? Four, okay. She remembers even better than me. See? Hey, you don't have to worry about me being a preacher that exaggerates. She remembers. We had $4 to our name. That's all we had. And literally, we weren't sure how we were going to put gas in the truck, let alone have something to eat. The cupboards in our trailer were empty. We had one can of Spam and one box of macaroni and cheese, and that was all there was. The freezer in the fridge was empty. The refrigerator was empty. We didn't have milk. We didn't have, we had one can of Spam and one box of macaroni and cheese. The church we were, I was associate pastor of at the time, had a Wednesday night prayer service, which was a big one where hundreds and hundreds of people came, but they didn't have a Wednesday night supper because the youth met in the gymnasium, which was also the cafeteria and fellowship hall. And so since the youth were in there, they had no Wednesday night supper. So Wednesday nights, we would eat in our trailer, and then we would head to prayer meeting afterward. Well, that night, we literally made our last meal with a can of Spam and a macaroni and cheese. We mixed the macaroni and cheese up from the box without milk, by the way. If you ever done it without milk and just use water, it's not the same. I'll tell you that right now. And uh, we took the can of Spam and we cut it up into chunks and mixed it up in the macaroni and cheese. And that was our dinner. And we literally prayed, God, 
you know our need. Now, we didn't tell anybody what was going on. We hadn't told anybody what was happening to us financially. We just put it in the Lord's hands. We drove to church that night, and when the service was over, the prayer service was over, a Sunday school teacher named Richard Bird came to me, and he said, do you have your pickup truck? And I I had a pickup truck at the time, a little Isuzu pup, and and I said, yeah. He said, well, our Sunday school class got you a present, and we want to give it to you. Can you come over to my house to pick it up? I said, sure. So we followed him to his house, and when he opened the front door of his house, I can still remember what it looked like. He opened the door, and their living room was covered floor Wall to wall with groceries. Folks, the whole time we were praying God were in trouble, those groceries were already sitting on his living room floor waiting for us. He knew what our needs were before we even asked him. We, by the way, loaded the truck up. We got home. I can still remember us just unloading the groceries. I mean, we had ham and frozen turkeys, and we were even going, cream corn! You know, it was just like, and the cupboards went from empty to full in one night. And it was a miracle, just an amazing miracle. And as you can tell by looking at me, we did okay. We did all right. Go to Matthew chapter 6, look at verses 31 and 32. Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those that don't know God, he's saying to the Jews. For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. You're going to see that tonight in some of the passages we're going to look at. God knows what your needs are. Go to Matthew chapter 8. Just jump over to chapter 8. Sorry, not Matthew. Mark. Mark chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 3. In Mark chapter 8, look at verses 1 through 3. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, He called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Don't miss that, folks. We read the story of Jesus feeding the 4,000 here and we rush through. Think of what Jesus just said. All these people had come from so many different distances to come be a part of this. And Jesus said, hey, they've been with us three days. They haven't had anything to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry in case they faint on the way. And some of them have come long distances. Did you catch that? He knew whether or not they'd eaten, and he knew how long they'd traveled. He knows. Another example, I mean, I could take the whole night sharing you story upon story about how God has provided for us as we've trusted him. One time as we were actually heading, again, my wife and I in our first year of marriage didn't have any money. We were heading for Thanksgiving back to come back here to Florida to Satellite Beach to do Thanksgiving with her family and my family. But we didn't have money for gas. We did not have enough money to get, we had gas in the tank, but it wasn't going to get us all the way here. And we had no money to buy gas. And so we felt like God was telling us to trust him. Again, we didn't do something stupid and hope God covers our rear ends. We prayed. We felt like God said, trust me and go. Like, all right, Lord, we're going we're to watch you do an Old Testament miracle here. And so we stopped at the church where I was associate pastor real quick to get a couple things out of my office that I needed. And while I run in, the senior pastor comes out and starts talking to Becky at the, in the truck. When I come back, um, I get in the truck and Becky's crying. I go, what did he say to you? I thought, you know, I thought like, I'm going to jump out and fight him, you know? She said, all he said was, have a nice trip. And then he handed me this, and Becky handed me a $100 bill. You have to understand, we didn't even know what a $100 bill looked like back then. Not only did $100 take care of us, that was enough money back then in 1990 to get all the way to Florida and all the way back a couple of times. We didn't even get out of New Orleans, and God had already provided everything we needed. He knew. He knows. He wants you to trust him. But sometimes, folks, he's going to put you in situations where it looks like it's not going to work out. You're going to see in a little bit later on some of the dangers that happen when you don't wait on God. Go to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. God knows, folks. He knows what your bills are. He knows what you're going through. He knows where you are health-wise. He knows. 1 Kings chapter 19. Look at verses 1 through 8. 
Ahab tells Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life as, li the, as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on a hot stone and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank, and he went into the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Does God know what you need? Does he know how far you got to travel? Yes. And he is a father who wants to show off on behalf of those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So he says, if your focus on how we're going to pay my bills, what are we going to eat? What am I going to wear? If your focus is on that, it's taking your focus off of him and you put it on that. And well, folks, let me just say this to you real quick. When you start worrying about your circumstances more than trusting God, God shrinks in your eyes. Let me just explain what I mean by this. In Matthew chapter 14, if you were to look, Jesus is walking on the water. Peter, they think he's a ghost and he says, relax, it's me. Peter says, if it's really you, tell me to come out to you on the water. And, and Jesus says, come on. So Peter, again, he didn't step out of the boat hoping that God would take care of him. He asked ahead of time first, do you want me to step out? Jesus said, come. You put faith in what he said. You don't have faith that God's going to take care of you and do something stupid and then hope God covers you. No, you put faith in what he said. Jesus said to Peter, come. So he does. He steps out of a boat in a crazy storm. He walks on the water for a little while, but the scripture says he then began to look at the wind and the waves and he started to doubt and he starts to sink. Jesus, of course, grabs him and says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Hang on for a second, Jesus. The dude had enough faith to step out of a boat in a storm and you say he has little faith? You go to the very next chapter, chapter 15. He's in this area and this Gentile woman comes up to him and she says, hey, help me. And Jesus says a very interesting thing. He said, it's not right for the children's bread to go to the dogs. I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Her response, by the way, is awesome. She says, even the dogs get to lick the crumbs that fall from the children's table. Let me paraphrase what she says. She says, if I have to be a dog, then I'll be a dog. You're the only one that has what I need. And what you have is so powerful that even if I just get crumbs, even dogs get to lick the crumbs that fall from the children's table. If you were sent to the children and I have to be a dog in order to get what I need from you, I'll be a dog. It doesn't bother me because even the crumbs from you will be enough. And Jesus turns to her and says, woman, you have great faith. Hang on for a second. Peter has enough faith to step out of a boat and he's told that he has little faith. Woman says, I'll take crumbs, and she's told she has great faith. You go to Matthew 17, and you look at Jesus when he says, hey, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, and I put my finger up because if I held one on my finger, you couldn't see it right now. He says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved, and it'll be moved. Now, if you've ever seen a mustard seed, you know that's really, really small. So he says, if your faith is the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. So listen, great faith or small faith has nothing to do with the size of our faith. Can't, if our faith is only the size of a mustard seed. Do you understand? Great, when, when I ask you, do you have great faith or little faith, you think it's the size of your faith. Great faith or little faith is not determined by the size of your faith, it's determined by the size of your God. You see, when Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and put him on the storm, the storm got bigger in his eyes and Jesus got smaller. The reason he had little faith is his God became smaller than the storm. The reason the woman had great faith, she saw God as so big, a crumb was all she needed. You understand? Go ahead. That town she lived in was the same town where Elijah fed the widow and the boy, so they didn't starve to death. Exactly. She was from Tyre and Sidon. Yep, Tyre and Sidon. Now, I'm sure the story probably had been passed down. By the way, if I were to ask you how many of you think you need more faith, you'd all want to raise your hands. But again, you're still thinking it's the size of your faith. You just need to see God for who he really is. And I can prove to you, by the way, you have plenty of faith. 
you don't need more faith. Many of you are like me, getting older, and you spend time. I actually had to draw blood today because of tests that are coming up. And you go to your doctor, and they prescribe medicine, right? And then your doctor writes the prescription down on a piece of paper and hands it to you, and you can't read it. Let's be honest. When the doctor writes his scratch, you have no idea what he just wrote. You take a piece of paper where you don't even know what it says to a pharmacist that has a room full of medicine that could kill you in an instant. You hand this piece of paper to someone you don't know, and they look at it, and they put pills in a bottle, and you put them in your mouth. You've got plenty of faith. You don't need more faith. You need a bigger God. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look, where your tre- remember last week where your treasure is, there will your heart be? When you see me for who I really am, you'll be content that you'll have food and clothing. You'll be content that I'll take care of you. The latest situation won't change it. Folks, don't feel like God doesn't know or doesn't care. He does. I want you also to notice, go back to Psalm 6. There's something pretty profound here. I want you to notice how God uses what he has already been showing us in creation to point out how much more valuable we are than birds and flowers. Go back again to uh, verse 28. No, it's 26. 26. Look at what he says. Did I say Psalm? I am so sorry. Matthew. Matthew. Thank you for paying attention. I wasn't. I wasn't paying attention. Hey, I'm a day closer to death. Give me a break. All right. Matthew chapter 6. Look at verse 26. Sorry about that. Look at what Jesus says. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, nor do they reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And look at verse 28. He says, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Again, when your faith is little, it's because your God's small. Listen, God, I'm going to show you this in Scripture. All through Scripture, when God wants us to see some truth about who he is, he points us back to creation. Isn't that interesting? Go to Romans chapter 1. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Go to Romans chapter 1. Then look at verses 18 through 20. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Look at that again. His invisible attributes, verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So here Jesus is teaching about worry, and what does he do? He just points to creation. He just points to creation. He said, look at the birds. Look at the, look at the lilies. Go to Psalm chapter 8. I mean Psalm this time. I heard you doubting me over there, Susan. Susan's over here, are you sure? Psalm chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 9. O Lord, our God, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? By the way, it's interesting The first one in part of verse four, what is man that you're mindful of him is plural. And then the son of man that you care for him is singular. If you know anything about this prophecy, it's talking about Jesus as well. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. By the way, those are all singular. 
You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. The book of Hebrews, the Hebrew writer brings out this passage when he's talking about Jesus. Does God care for us? Yes, he does. But at the same time, this, pro- this passage is prophesying about Jesus. It says, all sheep and oxen and the, also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I know a lot of you love the old hymn, How Great Thou Art. When through the woods, in the forest grade, I wander. You understand what I'm saying? All the way through, it's talking about creation and how God uses creation to remind us of who he is and who we are. A lot of times when I want to go and spend some time in earnest prayer with God, I'll go out at night in my backyard and just sit out there and look at the stars. Reminds me of his power and his glory. I don't have the time to have you turn there, but if you were to write down Psalm 111, verses 1 through 10, you take, I take it to Psalm 111 and you could see it. Again, it uses creation to reveal himself. Folks, turn your TVs off. Get out of your house. Go let God speak to you. I wonder how many of you have ever really noticed what God does and he says when he shows up to Job to answer Job's questions. He, God, goes on for four chapters about his already revealed answers about himself as revealed in creation. Go with me real quickly. You're in Psalms. Back up one book to Job. Job chapter 38. I'm just going to read to you just the first chapter. Job's got all these questions. He wants to ask God. I don't think this is right. I don't think this is fair. Blah, blah, blah. And if I had a chance, I could talk. I would talk to him and defend myself. And God shows up. As you're about to see, God says, uh, I understand you've been questioning me and you're going to ask me a few questions. I'll tell you what, before you do, let me ask you a couple quick ones and then you can go ahead and ask all you want. Well, God goes on for four chapters, folks, and all he does is just use creation. Listen to Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action, Job. Dress your action like a man, and I'll question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined his measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line out upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea doors when it burst out from the womb? Shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb. When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare that if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for this time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass? 
and the clods stick fast together. Can you hunt the prey for lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thickets? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? By the way, I could go on. You get the idea, don't you? Folks, listen to me. One thing I've started to notice is that when God shows up and speaks here in Job and Jesus and when he was on the earth, most of the time when he's having, quote unquote, to defend himself for people that are questioning him, he either points them to creation or to his word. You see that on the road to Emmaus with the two men who had had so much revealed to them. They had been a part of the group of disciples. They had heard about the resurrection. The women came back and reported it. Peter and John came back and reported it. But they weren't sure. They were discouraged. We thought he was the one. And they, they started to head back. What happens? Jesus shows up and all he did was remind them of what he's already said. Folks, listen to me. When you stand before the creator, if you've never been reconciled to him through the death of his son... He is going to hold you accountable to all that has been revealed to you. And the Bible says he's already revealed a lot about himself through creation and through his word. He doesn't have to come up with an answer for you. He's already told you. For those of you that were here Sunday, we looked at Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, where God says in verse 8, he's already told you, O man, what the Lord requires of you. He's already told you. Romans chapter 1 says, you're without excuse. You've already heard. We always try to quote Romans chapter 10. Well, how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? The very next verses go on and say, did they not hear? Of course they did. His word has gone out into all the earth. Folks, Jesus comes back here in Matthew chapter 6, speaking to a group of people that were worrying about all this stuff. And folks, if you're like me, you're like them. We all have struggled with it. We still struggle with it. Even though we could look back at the many times, and as I've shared a few of the stories in our life, how God has provided. When the next situation arises, we're just like the disciples who picked up the 12 basketfuls. But then when the next situation arose, we'll say, how are we going to feed all these people in this such a desolate place? If you're like them, you're like me. If you're like me, you're like them. But Jesus comes to us and he says to us, I know and I care. And I've proven it. But if you're struggling with this, just look at the birds. Folks, there's many a time that I'll be out and I'll just see a bird out there and I'll think to myself, that bird is eaten. He's got me too. He's got me too. Hopefully you would never make an idol and pray to it and trust in it. I don't care if it rains or freezes as long as I got that plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. No, I'm not talking about that kind of thing. Hopefully you'd never make an idol and pray to it and trust in it to provide you with all your needs. But whenever we look to ourselves or to any other human to take care of us, we make an idol of them. Whenever you think it's up to you to provide for yourself, when you think it's up to you to make the right decision, when it's up to you, or you look to anybody else. When you get mad because the government changed the laws and now that's affecting your 401k or when you get mad and it's changed your health care plan and when you get mad because the government or somebody or you've taken your eyes off of him, haven't you? And you've made an idol. You begin worshiping man because you think man has power over you when ultimately God says, no, ultimately I'm in control of all that. Go back to Romans chapter one. We ended on verse 20. Look at verse 21. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. We've just seen that he's revealed himself and they're without excuse. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, they became, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
I've heard some people say, if the next election happens and this other side wins, I'm going to have to go move here. God can't take care of you here. He only can take care of you there. You're worried about man. Go to Psalm 118. Look at verses 8 and 9. Psalm 119, verses 8 and 9. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. That means those in authority and government. Do we want righteous leaders in our country? Of course. Do we want people that seek the Lord in our governments? Of course. But don't think for a second. That man is where you get your provision. It's God. Now, I'm going to take you to a passage of Scripture that I've been quoting for years, and I've quoted it to you again tonight in a, in a certain measure. I'm going to quote it to you again, but I'm going to give you the fuller context tonight, because the fuller context will be really helpful. You've heard me say for years, and I touched on it again earlier, that the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth, looking to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. You've heard me say that over and over. What you don't know probably is I didn't quote to you the whole verse nor the full context. What I just said is true, but I think it would do us some good tonight to see the full, fuller context and the rest of that verse. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 7 through 9. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 7 through 9. Second Chronicles 16. To kind of set the stage as you're going, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, is at war with the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is attacking the southern kingdom. And the king of the southern kingdom of Israel says, or Judah, says to uh, the, this king of Syria, hey, break your pact with the northern kingdom and make a covenant with us. We'll give you the treasury from the temple because right now they're attacking us. And the Bible actually says in the passage right before it that, that the northern king had come down, Basha had come down to attack the southern kingdom, and Asa is the king of the southern kingdom, and they're attacking them. And he built this town called Ramah, where they had all these siege works built, and they had made it so that the people in the southern kingdom couldn't get any supplies in or out. They had built them, and they had spent weeks and years and months building this up, and now the people of the southern kingdom are in trouble because they can't get out of the city, they can't get resources into the city, and the, the northern kingdom's pretty much got them. So the king of the southern kingdom contacts the king of Syria, another nation, a wicked nation. He says, break your pact with the northern kingdom, make one with us, we'll give you treasuries from the temple, and go and attack them. And so they, the king of Syria agrees. And they go and they start attacking the northern kingdom while the northern kingdom's army is down attacking the southern kingdom of Judah. They get word of it, and they quickly get up and they hurry back to their hometown to protect their families. And while they do... All the people of Judah come out of the city and they have all this stuff that they had built up and their supplies and they plundered them. And they had so much stuff that they gathered from that town, Ramah, they were able to build a couple of cities. That's how much stuff they gathered. Sure sounds like his plan worked, didn't it? Listen to what God says through the prophet in chapter, seven, chapter 16, verse 7. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, the king of Judah, and he said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria... And did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Here's the rest of the verse. You've done foolishly in this. From now on, you're going to have wars. He says, don't you remember when I took care of you in the past, when you relied on me, when there was a worse situation? Why all of a sudden, when you trusted me in the past, did you not trust me now? Oh, I must have shrunk in your eyes. I shrunk in your eyes. Because you relied on man and not on me, I'm going to let you be pretty much subject to the hand of man. You're going you're to suffer because of it. Syria. Syria. 
At that time, it was Syria. Folks, let me just tell you. Whenever we put confidence in ourselves or somebody else besides God to take care of us, we make an idol. We make an idol and we worship it. By the way, what good does it do to worry? <laughs> I wrote down here, it doesn't do any good besides make you miserable and no fun to be around. Back in Matthew chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? It, it doesn't help, does it? I, I actually was on the phone uh, last few days taking care of testing. They're gonna, I have a CAT scan coming up a week from today to celebrate my birthday in a week uh, to, uh, to find out if my cancer's back or not. It's just a regular checkup, and I don't feel like anything's the matter, and so it's just hopefully going to come back clear like they always do. And whatever, he's got, he's got me. But as I was on the phone waiting, and if you've ever been on the phone waiting for doctors, they'll have some stuff playing. And this time it wasn't... Uh, Music, it was public services announcements and stuff, but they actually had something that was very true. It was talking about stress and how God is, the, they, they didn't use the term God, but they, how our bodies have been designed. We know God did it. Our bodies have been designed when you have a situation or uh, an episode that you need to be focused, your body builds up adrenaline and you stress, right? But it, the stress makes you get focused, and it's how you deal with the situation. But then, by God's design, when the situation's over, you're supposed to release it, let it off. If you don't ever learn to release the stress, it builds up and stays built up, and that will have a detrimental effect on your body. It will break down. In the same way, when you worry about this stuff, you get tense. It's natural. But you're supposed to, by the way, in Philippians chapter 4, you know how it says, don't be anxious about anything? We've always read that as to don't ever be anxious. Actually, if you're never anxious, there's nothing for you to pray about. Do you understand what I'm saying? The passage says, don't be anxious, but in your situation, pray. And he gives you the peace that passes understanding. There's, there's, you're going to be anxious. Don't beat yourself up if you worry about something again tomorrow. Oh, Jim says I wasn't supposed to worry. No, no, no. When it happens, go to the Lord. It's going to happen. Don't feel like it's never supposed to happen, that you're never supposed to worry. No, 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 no. That stuff's going to happen, as you're going to see by the end of our study tonight. I'm not saying to you tonight, when Jesus says, don't worry, don't ever, ever worry. He's saying, when the worry comes, when the thought, which is natural of, oh, no, the storm, when that happens, look to me. Therefore, look to me. Seek me, and I'll take care of it. But take every thought captive. Whenever we stress and worry, that stress builds up, our muscles get tense, our bodies hurt, and it starts to tear us down. It doesn't do us any good. And then he also, look at chapter 6, verses 31 and 32 of Matthew. He says, when we worry, we act like we don't know who God really is. Maybe we don't. Verse 31 and 32, therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the Gentiles? Some of your translations say the pagans seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows you need them all. You see, our focus should be daily renewed and put back where it belongs. Our trust should be squarely centered on God, who will tell us what we're to do in each situation. And when he does, we obey him, trusting in him to provide for us and to make it work out. Let me say that to you again. Our focus should be daily renewed. That means our focus is naturally going to want to shift off the path, if you will. That's very normal. That's why His mercies are new every morning. Because our flesh gets up every morning. That's why we're to daily lay our flesh, our bodies on the altar as a living sacrifice. That's why we're to daily renew our minds. Don't fall into the pattern or listen to the teaching of those who say, Oh, I just so trust God. I'm never worried. I'm always happy. God's God so good. I never. That person's a liar. Jesus himself even dealt with stress, did he not? The Bible said he even had drops of blood. You want to talk about a level of stress, which is medically possible, by the way, when you're in severe stress. 
Jesus had stress, but he knew what to do with it. He went to the Father. Worrying is when we don't go to the Father, and we're the ones who sit there worrying what we're going to do, what we're going to do, how am I going to pay my bills, maybe I have to have a garage sale, maybe I need to take a second job, maybe I... You ever been there? Or who can I ask for a check? Go to 1 Kings chapter 17. Our focus should be daily renewed and put back where it belongs. And our trust should be squarely centered on God who will tell us what we're to do in each situation. And when he does, we obey him, trusting in him to provide for us and to make it work. 1 Kings chapter 17. Everything I just said to you is illustrated in this one story here with Elijah. We already saw him earlier tonight uh, in 1 Kings 19. Now we're going to be in 1 Kings 17. And it's no accident that we looked at 19 first and then at 17 and to where we're going. In 1 Kings 17, look at verses 1 through 9. It says, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, the king of Judah. I'm in 2 Kings. Only go to 1 Kings. That works. 1 Kings 17. Now Elijah. You did. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishba and Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand... There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and he did according to the word of the Lord. And he went and he lived by the brook Kareth, that's east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there, which you were just talking about earlier. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So then he arose and he goes. Listen closely to what's going on here. God has Elijah powerfully make a prophecy. There'll be no rain in the land because of your, your, your sin against God. You're turning to idols and against every, everything God's been teaching you. Tell you what, he's going to shut the heavens. There'll be no rain for the next three years until I say so. And then God tells him, by the way, they're not going to like that, so you better go hide. Go hide. By the way, I preached a few sermons that I wanted to say amen and run. <laughs> go hide. I've commanded ravens to take care of you. He drank from the brook. And then, interesting, the, the ravens brought him bread and meat. Put yourself in a raven's mindset. Ravens don't share meat. They don't share bread. Yet the ravens come and, bread and bring him bread and meat, and they leave it. Oh, he's shown you over and over through miracle upon miracle that he knows and he cares. They fed him for three years, and the brook dries up. And he goes on. Actually, not for a total of three years, but it goes for three years. But during that time period, the brook dries up, and God says, I got a new there for you. I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. You go there. Folks, listen to me. This is the same guy that just two chapters later, Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And he was afraid, and he ran for his life. Did God tell him to run for his life this time? No. But he was afraid because he took his eyes off of God and put him on Jezebel. When his eyes were on God, he was able to defeat 450 men, prophets of Baal. But when he took his eyes off of the Lord and he put them on the woman, she looked bigger than him, and he, his great faith became small faith. Why? Because the size of his God shrunk. But God lovingly comes and he feeds him. We already saw it. Feeds him. Says, look, i got a great journey for you. And he provided for him, and he gave him enough food that was going to take care of him for the 40-day journey. Folks, we're all going to have times where we worry. Don't stay there. The anxiousness will come. I, I can prove it to you. Keep reading. Go back to Matthew chapter 6. Look at verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, there it is again, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Wait a minute. Didn't Jesus just say, don't be anxious? Because tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Keep reading. Sufficient for the day 
is its own trouble. How many of you have wanted a life in which there was no trouble? We all have, haven't we? Even though we know Jesus said in this life you will have trouble, right? We know that. But what does he say in that passage? In me, you'll have peace. But when we say we want a life with no trouble, what we're really saying is, I want Jesus to be wrong. He has said in this world, you're going to have trouble. It's going to happen. You're going to find a little bit. Why? Secondly, how many of you thought to yourself, all right, I know as much as I would love to have a life with no trouble. Bible says there's going to be trouble. I would just like a few days off. You ever thought that thought? Again, let the scripture speak. Let God be true and every man a liar. Each day has got enough trouble of its own. There's going to be trouble. So Jesus has just been spending all this time talking to us about, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about all this stuff. Your heavenly father knows. And then at the end of this, he drops the stinking bomb of, oh, by the way, you're going to have trouble every day. Why would he do that? Oh, because it's good for us. Go to John chapter 16, the one I just quoted just a second ago. John chapter 16, verse 33. John chapter 16, verse 33. He said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Why has he told us? By the way, all this, he's been talking about all the bad stuff. Chapter 15, especially, he starts getting how the world's going to hate you and all this stuff. Because I've told you this. Why? He said it right here. Verse 33. Why has he told us that there's going to be trouble? That's part of it. But he just says it right there. Exactly. I've told you this so that in me, you'll have peace. That you would stop looking for no trouble. And that when you understand trouble's natural, people do die. Life does change. Not all news is good. But he's promised to take all things and make them work for the good. For those who, what? Love him and are called according to his purpose. He said, look, I've intentionally, remember the illustration that I gave you a couple weeks ago about the road with the dark barking dogs or the road with the playgrounds? He goes, I'm going to have most of it barking dogs because of my purpose is so that you walk with me. That's the whole point. I want you to get to know me. I want you to know me. That's the whole point. I've told you this so that in me you would have peace. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Look at verses 7 through 11. Philippians 3 verses 7 through 11. Paul's talking about his own life and he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Did you see that? Paul says, I want to know Christ, and the way that I'll get to know him is through suffering, becoming like him. Folks, we have been taught a form of Christianity that is not biblical. There are people filling churches and stadiums around this world. And they're on television. 
preaching that if you walk with Christ, you'll be millionaire and you'll never be sick. You'll, if, if, if you're sick, it's because you don't have enough faith. And it goes against everything the scripture teaches. And Jesus himself said, I've intentionally left this mess and you in it. I've done it so that you would come to know me even better. And Paul, by the way, if, if, if any of you think you suffered, compare yourself to the life Paul, God had chosen for Paul. And be grateful that he didn't have that chosen for you. But he says, you know what? It's caused me to get to know Christ more. And that's been worth it. Many of you have been through stuff like I've been through and we've all been through. Would I want to go through chemotherapy and radiation again? No. But I wouldn't trade anything that God did during that time. If I had to choose to go through it again and get what he taught me through it and did in my life through it or skip it and lose all that, I will look you in the eye and say, bring me the chemo. Because what he does in those times is greater than you could ever understand. And I can't do anything but just share that with you scripturally. In this world, you will have trouble, but in him, there is peace. We're going to close tonight in Psalm 34. There's a couple this weekend. Becky and I are going to have the privilege of flying to Chicago. We're leaving Thursday morning. We'll come back late Saturday night. There's going to be a weekend get-together of folks who are all a part of the church that I was pastor of years ago in Chicago, Brainerd Avenue Baptist, and a bunch of folks are coming from around the country back for this weekend. For Sat Friday and Saturday, we're just going to get together and enjoy a meal together and just encourage each other in the Lord and talk about all that God did back in those years, 20 years ago, and what's He doing now, and share stories. And just, just to kind of like Paul going back and visiting the churches he went to, but because of the travel, people are coming from 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 Missouri and coming from North Carolina and we're coming from Florida and whatever, but there's a couple that still live there in Chicago that I can't wait to go hug. It's Walter and Diane Tereschenko. Because as a young preacher, barely 30 years old, I was able to walk a little bit through Walter's cancer to the point that Walter, he's a mechanic. He actually was our mechanic while we were up there where he would be doing his chemotherapy and throwing up for the next two or three days while he was working. And doing chemotherapy and throwing up for the next two or three days while he was working. And when it was all said and done, and I went and visited him, I asked him that question. If you had to choose again, whether you go through the chemo and go through the cancer, but you wouldn't get the blessings that God did through that, or just skip it. He, he looked me in the eye back then and he said, give me the cancer. And I, as best I could, understood it, but I didn't. Until it was my turn. Listen to Psalm 34. I can't wait to look at that Walter and Diane and say, I understand now more than I ever did. Psalm 34, verses 17 through 22. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears, and he delivers them out of all their troubles. But did it say you won't have trouble? No, he'll deliver you out of it. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. By the way, that none of, one of his bones will be broken. Who was that talking about? It was Jesus. But this prophet, prophecy and this promise is for us as well. He's not promised you that you'd have no trouble. Actually, as you've been going through, Jamie, in this whole learning to walk with Jesus about moving and job, and every time it looks like it's going to work out, all of a sudden the latest, oh, no. And then he shows himself in a way that's unbelievable, isn't it? Oh, by the way, between now and when you fly back to Thailand, there's going to be a few more. But it's good because he's growing your faith. He's going to get bigger and bigger. There's going to be more. Has anybody ever climbed a mountain that you've never climbed before? And you know that you think you see the top. You ever been that? You ever been that? like, oh, there it is. And you get there and you realize, ah, that was just a peak that made it so you couldn't see the further on peak. When am I going to get there? 
But by the time you actually make it, you're so glad you went through all that you did. Folks, are you going to worry about stuff and be anxious? Yes. Don't stay there. It's the rumble strips. They've taken your eye. You're recognizing that you've taken your eyes off of Jesus. Put them back on him. Now, next week, we're going to move into the last section of the Sermon on the Mount. Can't wait. We're going to be dealing with one of the most quoted passages of Scripture in the world today. It used to be John 3.16. It is now Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, Judge not, lest you be judged. We're going to look at what the Scripture really has to say about that. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.